Good afternoon and welcome to Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99% for December 9th, 2023. And our intro music is Leonard Cohen's Democracy. And it always is, but we keep mentioning that with each new show. You are listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula Community Radio, live streaming on 1015kfgm.org and available on podcast at anchor.fm forward slash VOP Montana or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. I am Sound Soundman Jim sitting in for Mick Hartzell, Old Mick. And Linda Gillison from North Carolina is joining us today, along with the star of the show, Mark Anderlich. Hello. Good to have both of you here. Good to good to be here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to hear you, Jim. Thank you. We broadcast from the new public library in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. We are recording the show from the comfort of our own homes, which are located in the stolen homeland of the Salish, being subtle about it for sure, and Kootenai Mm -hmm. people. Yeah, and Mark and uh, Jim are there, and I'm down here in North Carolina, and I'm going to say I'm broadcasting from the homeland of the Lumbee people, Um, still waiting for federal um, uh, recognition (laughs) to be completed. Right. Our show, Voice of the People, seeks to give local, state, national, and international news and perspectives on that news that you rarely hear from the corporate news media. We cite our sources and try our best to follow good journalistic ethics. Our bias is to inform and educate the 99%, the working class in Montana, so we can build our power to establish political and economic democracy. Uh, that said, we want to give, as usual, old Mick a shout out. Hey, Mick. Uh, hope hey, Mick. Good for the holidays. I hope you're well. Yeah. Yes. Happy Advent season to you, sir. Yeah, yeah. Hope you're well, well. We're doing our best to keep up the standard that you brought to this program. That's right. That's right. Well, That's right. Well, we have a good show today. We hope it's up to the, those standards. Um, our word of the week is imperialism. That's a big word. Uh, we mm-hmm. will also hear an interview of a Bailey Desper, an organizer in Billings who is working on issues of the unhoused there. Uh, we take a long look at the state of free speech in the U.S., including over the war in Gaza. We will also discuss the prospects of the war in Ukraine in the face of refusals to fund Ukraine and uh, the war there. And we will also cover the United Auto Workers Union, which continues a great, if unusual, uh, continues to set a great, if unusual, example for other unions to follow. And uh, lastly, we'll cover the cost for Starbucks when their workers rebelled on Red Cup Day. That is a whole lot of community radio for your community radio dollar. 
And I, for one, look forward to hearing all of that. And um, we've got a biggie for a word of the week this week. It's uh, five syllables. Count them. Five star <laughs> reading. Imperialism. It's a word usually meant as an insult. Is it not, Mark? Yeah, well, often it is, Jim. And the word imperialism describes an international order and the drives behind that order that greatly helps to explain why the U.S., for example, seems to be always engaged in so-called forever wars. Um, two shows back, our interview guest, University of Montana professor Richard Drake. Um, do you know him, Linda? I do, indeed. He's one of my best buds. All right, all right. Oh, that's great. Yeah, love Richard. Yeah, yeah. he's great. So we've got an insider. I yep. love it. Yep, that's right. Anyway, well, uh, Professor Drake used the word often to help explain the U.S. proxy war against Russia and Ukraine in U.S. support for Israel in its genocidal slaughter in Gaza. Yeah, indeed. In fact, that's got me preoccupied lately, and my usual concern for the Ukraine got displaced this week. But imperialism usually involves military occupation of another country. Does it well, not? Yeah, often it does, especially in the 1800s and the first half of the 1900s. Right. But it's not always necessary for this to happen, especially uh, with the form of imperial imperialism practiced by the United States after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. So I guess we should be asking for a definition of imperialism. Sure. Um First off, though, as listeners know, we like to use Wikipedia as a reference for our words of the week very often, not always. Um, our fearless leader and radio station manager, JVD, has suggested that we include a note about Wikipedia, that each entry is written by the public with citations provided for sources of information. So the accuracy of each entry may vary somewhat. And as reporters Ben Norton and Max Blumenthal wrote in a June 11, 2020 article in The Gray Zone, quote, Wikipedia has become a bulletin board for corporate and imperial interests. Here we go. How um, appropriate. Uh, oh, gosh. Under the watch of its Ian Randian founder, Jimmy Wales, and the veteran U.S. regime change operative who heads the Wikimedia Foundation, Catherine Mayer, end quote. And I, I just, uh, for, this, no, yeah. Sorry, for, this art, for this show... I found all kinds of uh, references of imperialism of other countries, but precious little about the United States. Found no. So, surprise. There you That's go. funny. Smedley Butler is um, going to be on the phone any second. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, Jim, who's Smedley Butler? Tell, tell that. He is everyone's favorite Marine, and he famously wrote about his experiences in um, Central America primarily and how and um, wrote it in graphic terms. And another little thing that he did that was very helpful was uh, in the mid-30s, there was an attempt to have a coup in the U.S., and it was very meticulously planned and could well have been successful but Smedley Butler chose to blow the whistle on them, mm -hmm. and it all collapsed. 
yeah, which I'm very thankful for because I'm no fan of fascism in America. Right. Well, <laughs> you're you're Was right. That and terse and concise enough. Yeah, <laughs> that's extremely concise. And uh, yeah, and mm -hmm. Butler Semper was five. highly critical of U.S. military in its imperialist project in Central America. Um, Good. Yeah. Good. Yes. So all of that, according to Wikipedia, quote, imperialism is the practice, theory, or attitude of maintaining or extending power over foreign nations particularly through expansionism, employing not only hard power, which it defines as military and economic power, but also soft power, which is diplomatic power and cultural imperialism. It continues, imperialism focuses on establishing or maintaining hegemony and a more or less formal empire, end quote. Oh, there is that word hegemony. What does it mean? Are we hegemons in this show, Bill? Jeez, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't want to push it too far, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, hegemony is a broader term than imperialism in one way of looking at it, as it can be also be applied to a nation's internal political economic order as well. So your country could be uh, uh, not imperialist um, with other countries, but you uh -huh. still have a kind of uh, internal imperialism, if you will. Um, and I'll get to that in a second here. Um, this is uh, from Wikipedia again. Uh, quote, in the early 20th century, the Italian Marxist philosopher Antonio Gramsci used the idea of hegemony to talk about politics within a given society. He developed the theory of cultural hegemony, an analysis of economic class, including social class, and how the ruling class uses consent as well as force to maintain its power. Hence, the philosophic and sociologic theory of cultural hegemony analyzed the social norms that established the social structures to impose impose their worldview, their Weltanschauung. Did I say that right? Mm -hmm. um, Weltanschauung. Uh, yes. It's a German word. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, world... Weltanschauung. Yeah. And, oh, okay. Uh, that... Even though he's an Italian, he's using German. Wow. <laughs> yes. We've already got yeah. that evil axis going. Well, on. it's it's that. <laughs> That's uh, right. Yeah. It's that uh, it means just worldview, um, yeah. just, mm -hmm. justifying the social, political, and economic status quo as natural, inevitable, and beneficial to every social class, rather than as artificial social constructs beneficial solely to the ruling class. Does that mm -hmm. end quote? Does that uh, bring to mind any any place in particular? <laughs> Gee, I, I'm surprised even to hear that that kind of thing happens. Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, oh, we'll sorry. get to why you might be, actually. Um, That's right. If I understand this, hegemony is how the ruling class, whether an outside imperial nation or internal to the nation, uses language, culture, politics, media, as well as military and economic power, to make it seem to the population that the existing order is natural and inevitable. To be more concise, yeah, and well, use more Latin cognates. Right. Well, exactly. Ramshi would be real proud of you, Jim, because that's <laughs> uh, well. You know, I, I got a lot of friends in the Vatican, but I'm glad to hear that my uh, that my um, effort to 
view the world sensibly is reached beyond the 105 acres on Vatican Hill. <laughs> well, uh, hegemony is an essential part of imperialism today. So if we take the U.S. example, hegemony is exercised both with, uh, with our Western allies like Europe, Japan, and Australia, but also in so-called developing countries like Colombia, Argentina, Nigeria, and Pakistan. And those same hegemonic forces are at work internally, aimed especially at the U.S. working class, to gain our consent for the current neoliberal capitalist order. That's a lot to untangle. It, it is, and it's more even more complicated. Uh, <laughs> trying to simplify here, but indeed it is. But we only have two hours. You know? We only have two hours. Um, <laughs> Well, the basic idea is that how do you get a nation or a class of people to do things that are against their own natural interest, but serve the interests of a small number of elites? That's the question, right? How does that mm -hmm. work? Mm -hmm. how, how does that happen? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. After all, we are at a point in time where there are small a small number of billionaires who have most of the world's population serving their needs. How did this come about? And that is so true. It, and I try to explain this to people and it doesn't go anywhere. So maybe you can give an example, Mark, that will have more traction. Well, I'll try. Unattractive people. Uh, yes, I'll try here. Um, in the U.S., and as we've neoliberal capitalism is is the, the basic uh, political economy in the United States. And neoliberal capitalism believes that the market is the only human institution worth defending. And um, But for the past 40 years, more or less, uh, the understanding of what our political economic system is has been uh, widely unrecognized by Americans as such. Neoliberalism is seen as something natural and inevitable. In fact, when you use the word neoliberalism, a lot of people will give you a blank stare. Like, mm -hmm. what, what does that mean? It's like describing water to a fish, right? You're exactly, exactly. Yes. You're you're swimming in it, and you're not conscious of, you know, you think it's natural. You think mm -hmm. everything is everything is water, right? Um, it had. Uh, Neoliberalism has been portrayed by the corporate news media, movies, university economists, and politicians as beyond question. This has undermined the average American's perception of the world by removing the possibility of any alternative. If something is just the way it is, then there exists no alternative. If there is no alternative, then the neoliberals largely shield themselves from any serious attempt at social change or even revolution that is the most concise and terse and pithy mm. explanation of something that fills library shelves i have ever heard so you mm -hmm. hit it out of the you hit it out of the park mark and Thank you know you, you, you should um i think i'm gonna may i'm gonna send a christmas card to pope francis and say see we're listening Papa, <laughs> we're doing it exactly so here we go. Here's the denouement. So how does hegemony fit in, tie into imperialism? Well, it is used in similar ways to maintain the imperialist project, which, if you recall, 
is one nation dominating another nation, right? Um, only it is used in other nations, right? The trick is how does the imperialist power gain power in foreign countries? Mm, yeah. Okay. What do you mean, Mark? This has got to be good. <laughs> I hope so. Um, well, <laughs> in, in the U.S., for example, the corporate oligarchs have control over the American working class, uh, the unorganized American working class, I'll put it that way, um, not only culturally, but with more direct if unspoken threats. We depend on having a job and earning a wage to house, feed, and sustain ourselves and our families. That's just a basic fundamental human need. Um, and that is one of our most basic interests that everybody shares around the planet. Uh, when corporate power runs counter to our interests, then that power will use more authoritarian force to make us comply, to accept a situation that is not in the interest, not in our interest. If someone wants to form a union, for example, often the threat by the corporate class is to throw the organizers out of work and set an example, don't you try this or you could lose your job too. Mm-hmm. Um, or to send us oh. into, if if we're part of the, you know, the, the educated class, right? Move us into meaningless or underpaid work, right? Uh, so then one may ask, and I'm hoping you'll ask this, Jim. How does <laughs> that's what I get paid for? <laughs> um, how does the U.S. exercise its imperial power when U.S. corporations do not employ most of the world? They can't use that threat of "Well, we'll we'll fire you if uh, because we don't practice that form of imperialism much anymore." Um, what stick does U.S. imperial imperialism have over other nations? Is this a multiple choice test? Or... <laughs> okay. So I'll, I'll just throw out um, the financial system. That, you bon- root of all evil. You, mm-hmm. hit, you, you hit that one. Uh, that's a solid triple, Jim. Um, oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> and so, um, and, and this is something uh, in doing re- a lot of research on this topic um, and trying to boil this down, uh, I r- ran into a guy named Hobson who, an uh, English writer who wrote around the turn of the 20th century about he he really laid the foundation for imperialism as a part of uh as a natural part of capitalism and then very mm-hmm. soon after that uh, uh vi lenin wrote about you know imperialism is the highest form of capitalism um and basically they made the argument that once in domestic markets, capitalists didn't have a, you know, they sort of saturated their market um, either uh, either because they need more uh, to expand, they need more resources, or they need more people to sell it to. That's where imperialism becomes a real thing. And it becomes a real thing in terms of often financial, but not to the extent those two writers had no idea how extensive um, mm finance was going to be. Um, and so uh, I want to turn to uh, U.S. economist Michael Hudson, who we've quoted several times on Great. the show. Yeah. And, and actually, in his interview, Professor Drake also spoke highly of Hudson, who wrote a book called Super Imperialism, um, mm-hmm. The Economic Strategy of American Empire. That's the full title of the mm-hmm. book, which I highly recommend. Um, so I'm going to read a part of an interview Hudson posted on his website that was really concise about how 
the U.S. is using finance to uh, uh, practice imperialism around the world. Um, okay, this is from Hudson. Quote, what I can talk about is what I'm a specialist in, and that is super imperialism. It's how the United States has used the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and international diplomacy to create a dollar standard that has underdeveloped the third world and has been a disaster ever since Bretton Woods came into being in 1944. The strategy, well, and obviously those things, uh, those institutions were created by, you know, the, uh, uh, the United States primarily, and the United States was really not affected economically or politically mm -hmm. or socially that much by the war compared to Europe and Russia and lots of other places. So the yeah. United States was kind of standing as the, the big winner out of world war II, Right. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, Hudson continues, the strategy of the world bank is to make export loans from Southern, from Southern sphere countries. And I think he means like developing countries Right. In, way, in ways that do not compete with the United States. The absolute prime directive of the World Bank is you must make other countries dependent on their food uh, on the United States. You cannot have countries grow their own food, be self-sufficient. You find this like in Africa, most countries mm -hmm. have suffered terribly from mm -hmm. that policy. And also, uh, if you want to look at Mexico, um, you know, NAFTA, uh, which was a trade agreement, Canada, oh, US yeah. and Mexico that was signed by Bill Clinton, um, really destroyed, uh, the corn economy in Mexico by right. demanding uh -huh. that US corn be shipped to Mexico, of course, GMO laden and all that, uh, right. and Mexico had, uh, Mex which really undermined the fundamental part of Mexico's economy. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, uh, the uh, so that's the um, yeah that uh, that's the um, uh, mm -hmm. the overall oh, strategy. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. This, this. Oh, go ahead, Jim. No, yeah. I uh, it's, it's a good point to interject here that there's a push pull here that exaggerates and amplifies the effect that in the United States there is a change in agriculture that we see. Here we are. Oh, you know, hayseeds in Montana and corporate agriculture is becoming the norm. So oh, yeah. we're it. So it's uh, once again, it, it's the twin evil of corporatism, monopolies and the, and the uh, financial system. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, it's and yeah. And it's the idea that if that we give loans, the World Bank mm -hmm. and the IMF give loans to countries which are in bad shape like Haiti or whatever because of earthquakes and floods and so on and so forth. <laughs> and then then the bank can dictate what the country spends its money on. Boom. In, yes. Inside Absolutely. the countries. So they're not building schools. They're not building hospitals. They're paying off their debts. Right, right, right. right. I'm so glad you brought that up. And, and you you summed you summed up the next uh, bit here oh. really well. No, it's excellent. Um, it, it, Montana has a role in this. We can go back to the infancy of the idiocy of the Trump administration, at, just as um, Puerto Rico was 
was stumbling with, uh, you know, storms and a financial crisis and how, and, and the very, very crude and transparent attempts by um, even a guy from Montana who was an interior secretary to, <laughs> to yes. you know, are, decapitate are, are, the, the uh, Puerto Rican, you know, public sector. Is his initials Ryan Zinke? initials <laughs> yeah that's it okay yeah yeah, yeah no z-i-n-k-e is an acronym for something i don't know <laughs> well and, and i think you're right jim that that is uh, a, a rather crude as you put it uh form of corruption and and and, and mm -hmm. imperialism but you know and there's also much more sophisticated uh manners of that which uh you know like the the uh uh, as we mentioned, the NAFTA agreement that mm -hmm. Bill Clinton signed and Democrats really promoted uh, and Republicans signed on too. Uh, that's a far more insidious, less yeah. kind of obvious no, form of, of this. Um, well, I'm so trying we, to keep we, it simple. Go for the obvious. Yeah, Yeah. no, that's 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 okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so um, to finish on the World Bank, what Hudson is saying, um, what I was told, so Hudson worked at Chase Manhattan Bank, which um, was mm. owned by David Rockefeller uh, mm -hmm. at the time. I think it's been merged with, you know, uh, Chase something or other. But uh, anyway, uh, what I was told when Hudson worked at Chase Manhattan Bank was wherever there is land reform, there's communists. And uh, <laughs> the, the mm -hmm. U.S. policy has exactly. Been U.S. policy has been to overthrow any government at all that is seeking land reform or seeking exactly own food supply. Exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. So as Hudson continues, he goes, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, also has worked hand in hand with the World Bank to essentially back oligarchies, especially financial oligarchies friendly to mm -hmm. the United States, to make loans basically for capital flight by foreign investors headed by U.S. companies. Right. And by domestic client oligarchies to move their funds out of the country at subsidized rates of IMF loans, then devalue. So that's a little jargony, but it's kind of what you said, Linda. Um, mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. IMF philosophy is the way that third world countries can compete, that the, that the way third world countries can compete is to lower their living standards, to keep lowering the, the price of labor, which is wages, to keep sucking up income to the top by foreign investors and the local oligarchy. So there's a payoff there, right? The local oligarchy can administer this because they're getting paid off by the oligarchs in the United States. Um, and they're all happy except for the people who are living in misery. Um, to privatize and sell off their public domain to foreign investors is also a feature of uh, of this kind of uh, mm -hmm. imperialism uh, to untax raw materials, to untax natural resource rents, to untax the housing rents, to create essentially a rollback of these countries to feudalism so that instead of developing these countries, the IMF and the World Bank underdevelops them. Um, Hudson exactly. continues. The Hudson right. continues. The main tool that the United States uses through the IMF, which you should think of Think of it as the IMF being a small room in the basement of the Pentagon, uh, mm -hmm. used essentially to promote U.S. foreign policy and make sure that you can financially bankrupt with sanctions 
or just withhold loans or currency rates on any country that's not following the U.S. neoliberal centralized control program. Now, remember that part, because we're going to come to that when it comes to Mm -hmm. uh, uh, what's going on in the world, especially Ukraine. Um, So basically, Hudson uh, concludes, uh, the Western economies are centered on the dollar standard so that the Eurozone and America's other satellites are basically satellites of the dollar area in order to function internationally, to do their their banking and investment and foreign trade. They all have to depend on the dollar, which essentially gives the United States the power to do what it's been threatening to do with Russia and China and has carried out with Russia, by the way, uh, cut them Mm -hmm. both off from the bank clearing system so that essentially they can't use the dynamics to clear banks. The point that I'm making is that the United States' way of controlling other countries is not military because you'd need a draft for that. You'd need an army that actually would be occupying. The era of military occupation is all over, at least for the U.S. The mode Mm -hmm. of control is financial. The financial mode of control is essentially to make loans on terms that cannot be repaid so that when they're not repaid, The creditor countries, the U.S., can foreclose on the assets of countries just like Paul Singer, a U.S. billionaire, did on the assets of Argentina when it couldn't pay its foreign Mm -hmm. debts in 2002, Mm -hmm. end quote. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm I'm glad that you brought in Paul Singer because he truly is the malefactor in so many, many different ways. Yep, he's one of the oligarchs. We 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 yeah, talk about the oligarchs. He is one of them, absolutely. Right, you bet, you bet. And, uh, and, well, and he's, he's. Oh, go ahead, Linda. Oh, I was just going to say that that uh, Mark, you brought up the business of Ukraine. Um, I think I was reading somewhere today um, that um, a lot of the aid that the West is giving to Ukraine is in the form of loans. So we're not just oh. handing them the money. I, I read that just in an article today. Oh. It's loans and grants. Right. So my understanding is, again, I mean, what this is only my understanding of it. I could be wrong. But whatever happens with Ukraine, they could win this war if they want. But they're still going to be so indebted to mm-hmm. Western powers that they'll no longer be independent states, even if they still call themselves sovereign states. Absolutely. And I, I, I think the, the thing that people miss is that there's two ways that the United States makes money when we send military aid or foreign aid to countries. Uh-huh. One, uh-huh. one is um, like, uh, you know, like the military aid for Ukraine is really just money that's not going to Ukraine. It's going to the U.S. weapons manufacturers. Right. And then they send their manufacturers over to Ukraine, which mm-hmm. actually they, they're replacing the ones that they've already sent over. So, right. um, And um, the second way is, as you point out, making a loan, that means that uh, not only can the U.S. Uh, earn interest and uh, exorbitant interest sure. on those loans, but also uh, that if 
you know, the Ukraine, if they survive, I, I have my doubts about them uh-huh. surviving, uh-huh. but uh, if they survive, that they will be totally indebted to the United States for forever and right. uh, will be right. uh, basically a, a, a U.S. client state, just like right. a lot of right. other mm-hmm. countries. Right. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> in, you know, in our own backyard, we have an example like Haiti, yeah. who got stuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> OK, I, for the benefit of our listeners, because I know I'm preaching to the choir here. You know, because of their revolution in the eighteenth in the in the eighteenth century, yep. they were paying back France until like mm-hmm. the mid thirties or mid fifties. It was crazy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so we wonder why they're impoverished and in the places un- right. unrulable. Well, you you suck the wealth mm-hmm. out of it for nothing. Right. And you you can destabilize a place. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. you, you can see what Hudson is talking about with the mm-hmm. U.S. creating and using a financial stick to ensure imperial, imperial obedience in, in the proxy war with Russia and Ukraine. By provoking the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, instead of sending in the U.S. Marines to combat that illegal invasion, and we'll get to some calls, some recent calls that we might do that. Um, Instead of sending in the U.S. Marines, the U.S. did two things. One is to arm the Ukrainian military to fight the Russians and to impose economic sanctions on Russia. The U.S. could do this, it believed, because the world economy, which includes Russia, depends on dollars to do business, as Hudson pointed out. It's a separate issue as to why the Ukrainian military is failing and sanctions are not working very well against Russia, But this Mm -hmm. was the belief of the neocons who run U.S. foreign policy going into Ukraine. And there's been a development since uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that is the rise of the BRICS-aligned countries, right? Right. Mm -hmm. BRICS stands Mm -hmm. for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, who are uh, smartly, uh, you know, for their own interest, are attempting to break away from the World Bank, the IMF, and the dollarized world economy in order to take away the imperialist stick from the United States. Yeah. Yes. And a good example of that, that that failed, was Muammar Gaddafi thought, why don't we use our oil and monetize it and have our, and um, improve our backyard on our own instead of including people that don't deserve to benefit from it. And funny thing, a war happens and he gets taken out. Yep. And Ellen Brown uh has said that was the cause. That was the reason. Right. Because he wanted to create Uh a a, a currency that uh, developing nations could use. That wasn't a dollar. That's, that's why Mm -hmm. Gaddafi was essentially murdered. Yep. No, yeah, that's a very really uh, good a, point. A a, a yeah. very inf- very yeah. informative tale, and it's too bad that only our informed listeners get the real scoop on what's going on. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So keep those independent dollars coming. Too. Yes. <laughs> KFGM. Yeah. That's right, Jim. All right. So. Uh, do you want to go on to some other news, Mark, or, or are we going to continue with this fascinating topic? Well, we'll come back to this. What it's, say you? It, it's going to be 
It's going to be woven into a lot of things we're going to be looking at what's currently happening today mm-hmm. to help explain maybe a little bit why it's happening. Um, but first off, we, you know, the temporary ceasefire uh, has ended in Gaza and the Israeli military is just continuing as if nothing has changed. It's ethnic cleansing, cleansing of Gaza with little regard for the civilians living there. So the genocide continues on. But uh, one encouraging piece of news uh, in the U.S. is that the United Auto Workers Union has publicly come out for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. And and as kind of said before, that uh, the United Auto Workers, with their new leadership, is really doing well in setting a good example for other unions to follow. So, Agreed completely. Yeah. It's very... It's the most hopeful thing I've seen in years and years and years is the the rebirth of union activity in a, in a new model. Right. I, I, it's an old model. Going but after it's, real it's, problems. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, no, but it's, it's, it's a return to their roots, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So. Um, so, so uh, any others? Any other details, Mark? Um, just no, that's I, I would say that um, the only thing I would add to that is that for a long time, well, I mean, we covered this before too. A few mm-hmm. weeks ago, the national AFL CIO had shut down a central labor council in Washington state from expressing solidarity with the Palestinians. They they shut them, they threatened to, right. you know, shut them down. No kidding. And they withdrew their yeah. uh, their resolution, and the UAW is uh, standing up to that. I mean, not it's not they're not going to kick out the UAW out of the AFL, I am sure. But mm-hmm. um, it just goes to show how out of step uh, you know some of the national labor leaders are with uh, the example that uh, UAW is setting. Right. Right. Gotcha. And uh, right. Ukraine situation. Um, yeah. So because of so yeah, there's been a lot of stuff going on about Ukraine uh, lately. Um, because of domestic politics, the U.S. Senate did not mm-hmm. pass a bill to send more military and economic money to Ukraine or Israel, uh, as the Associated Press reported on December six. Quote. Senate Republicans on Wednesday blocked the advance of a $110 billion package of wartime funding for Ukraine and Israel, as well as other national security priorities, as they tried to force President Joe Biden to include changes to U.S. border policy, end quote. Um, Of course, the Biden administration has argued that this will hurt the profits of the arms-making corporations, which is also a stick to threaten workers if they mm-hmm. don't support the U.S.-Ukraine foreign policy, right? Yep. Um, Absolutely. Right. Here's a report from the NC Newsline, North Carolina Newsline. A shout out to North Woot, Carolina. Woot. Yeah. 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 There we go. Um, it, it's a news outlet in North Carolina. Um, on December 4th, um, that report said, quote, the Biden administration is warning Congress that without more funding for Ukraine, the United States will no longer be able to provide that country with military assistance and emphasizing the multiple states from Arkansas to Michigan to Pennsylvania, where businesses already have benefited from earlier aid, as we have discussed. 
Cutting mm-hmm. off U.S. funding would not only weaken Ukraine's ability to stave off Russia's invasion, but impact defense manufacturing throughout America, which has seen billions more to build weapons. White House Budget Director Shalanda Young wrote in a letter to co- congressional leaders before the vote in the Senate, by the way, um, she said, I want to be clear, without congressional action by the end of the year, we will run out of resources to procure more weapons and equipment for Ukraine and to provide equipment from U.S. military stocks, end quote. Yeah, I I mentioned this to you, Jim, uh, uh, Mark. I just was absolutely wowed when I saw that article published this past mm-hmm whenever it was, because it just strikes me that the good of the defense industry is one of the real motor uh, motor uh, impulses for so much militarism that we involve ourselves in around the world. Yep. And, you know, I really believe and all of the power that corporations put on our Congress people, our senators and our representatives. And the defense industry is huge in that regard. Um, And if we hadn't wars in Ukraine to support or wars in Guatemala or wars in wherever, Mm. we wouldn't need those big defense contractor types, right? Right. And I and I heard somebody mention years ago now that this is probably one reason that so strategically we have placed um, uh, military production in virtually every state in the union. Oh, yes, that's the key. This way, if a senator or a congressperson wants to say, I really don't think we should get involved in this war. I think it's, you know, time to chill it on that. Suddenly people in his or her state are facing unemployment, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Or downed employment. So it's a way of putting pressure on the government to make particular policy decisions because that economic arm is so huge. Precisely. Yep. Yeah. And these are, these are good jobs they're great jobs they're, and who yes. wouldn't want a great job you know uh, and a um, lot of them are union somebody jobs, with a conscience too. and a lot <laughs> of them are union jobs that's exactly right oh, yes, a lot of absolutely. them are union jobs yeah for sure so it's really hard to you know thorny. to cut our our you know our tendency change our tendency to get involved at everything we see going on in the war because it really boosts our economy. People say war makes money. Well, it does, you know. But it mostly under, you know, we've talked about this before, uh, even the really good wages paid in the military, uh, you know, production complex. um, That's, you know, the the owners of Northrop Grumman and Boeing and Lockheed Martin. Don't forget Raytheon. 
Yeah, and Raytheon. Yeah, I don't want to discriminate. Um, okay. No, uh-uh. uh, right. that uh, they're they're making billions in profits. Of right? course they and, are. Of and course they shareholders. Are. So oh, yeah, it, it, this is uh, you know this is like feeding sugar water to hummingbirds, right? Um, it's oh mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the fact that so many people are working in those industries, even though they're not mm-hmm. making the huge bucks, right keeps those people in line as you Absolutely. were saying right yep, yep. it's right. the stick it's yeah. the imperialist stick and exactly. what surprises me is there's is there's a geographic factor here um sure. the, the defense industry is largely located in southern states in the south because we That's don't have right. many unions because we don't have yeah. many unions or yeah. or I, I think it goes back a, a generations to um the 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 milder weather made it easier to produce things and operate them and um, oh, train indeed. soldiers and yeah. using them. Yeah, if you look at it, you know, I've, <laughs> I'm very familiar with this because I've had to do this. Um, the southern states have a disproportionate amount of uh, defense contracting, and right. these are the in it's mostly big states that are extremely red. So mm-hmm. what's mm-hmm. going on that is causing people that have everything to gain by having increased weapons procurement instead mm-hmm. say, no, 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 we must, we can't support Ukraine. You know, where are they getting their marching orders from? Yeah. Yeah. When it's, when it's visibly against right. their cultural values, it's against their economic interests. Yeah. It's, it's domestic, that's domestic politics, right? So yeah, okay. and they can say they can say, well, we don't want the arm the uh, America to go further in debt, right? That's one. Oh, the other yeah, is right. the other is if Ukraine loses, they can always blame Biden. Right. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. It's mm. yeah. Well, you know, I didn't think of that. So you think this is a setup now, because we know. know what would have happened with the 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 once and future king, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, he was, he didn't even want NATO. That was the first order mm-hmm. of business was, was to disrespect and, and uh, disarm and demobilize NATO. Thank you. Um, you know, I happen to agree with that. Uh, but I would That's say okay. for the, uh, I, I would agree with a lot of the, the Republicans, they have the wrong reasons for Right. Pushing mm-hmm. that. Right. I would disagree with the reasons, but some of the outcomes, I think, are uh, are actually beneficial to the United States. But it's not coherent or I mean, it's it's really they'll, they'll once in power, they'll they'll sing the old imperial uh, hegemonic sure. tune themselves. Right. Sure. So I, I don't sure. have any exactly. trust that there'll be any different. Um, and no. okay. the no. Democrats who can parade around and, and be virtuous. Um, yeah. so, um, hmm, I guess. So, <laughs> or at least try to appear to be, right? Well, um, right. Ukraine and Gaza are uniquely complex and perplexing situations. They, they are, but it's they also... very, very hard to make, to, to, to make a value decision or a moral decision and well, um, not, be able to it, keep it, people it, happy. It's not hard if you if you don't have the hegemonic forces uh, pressing in on you, trying mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. maintain imperialism, right? 
right. otherwise it's not it's not complicated at all united states would never have gone into and demanded that uh ukraine join nato which that was the proximate mm-hmm. cause of the invasion sure. right and sure. supporting you know the supporting Israel, right? Uh, in, uh, you know, in 1947, they displaced, uh, you know, 700, 800,000 Palestinians right, from right. lands that, they, that they've lived in, in, you know, because of like other political reasons. Yeah. Right? Like for uh-huh. millennia, you know? <laughs> well, right, right. Exactly. It's like, so, uh, you know, and sometimes it's, uh, it's the adults, you have to have an adult in the room, uh, to sort of keep these, Mm-hmm. folks in line and, and but, it's useful to remember that a lot of the nonsense in ukraine was was baked in to the Golumki uh by you know james baker and uh you know george <laughs> w and and even clinton you know oh yeah it's yeah it, yeah, it goes it, back it, they were they were impolitic and reckless decisions made at high levels well, and now we're trying and now we have to service the nonsense that that we put in place for decades. So we in, in the 1990s, mm-hmm. uh, the U.S. was victorious in a way uh, in in causing the Soviet Union to be uh, to collapse. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and the neoliberal order was imposed. That was the shock therapy. Mm-hmm. That, uh, mm-hmm. That was imposed on Russia, and during oh, that time yeah. in Russia, mm-hmm. in in, oh. in the mid '90s, over a period of four years, mm-hmm. their, their average uh, life expect expectancy fell seven years. Um, and yep. so, uh, out of those, and so all the oligarchs of Russia, there was no oligarchs in Russia before that, and now you know they're pretty much in control, and Putin's their guy. Uh, and Putin has uh, been clever enough to help keep them in power that, you know, that there was, mm-hmm. wasn't going to be another revolution. So, right. um, you know, uh, all of these things so, are, are, are there's there's some there's some definite, you know, uh, oh, oracle connections that you can make. Yeah. And this <laughs> we could do about 10 shows on that. But I, I think the twin mischief of having um, Chicago school cowboys. Mm-hmm. Um, go in and say, "Oh, now you've got you're you're not under the yoke of um, communism any longer. Why don't we introduce a system that will enfeeble a country and uh, develop a um, a kleptocratic class of the people that happen to be in charge?" And it was a horrible thing to do. And you can ask the Russian people how well it worked out, right? Or the Chilean okay. people. <laughs> yes exactly yeah, i know yeah. lots of or the argentinian people or the mm-hmm. or the indonesians or i mean yep. yes the, the exactly. list is long and the salvadorans so this, the uh yeah and the in the imposition so you know it was cloaked under liberal mm-hmm. democracy yeah. and freedom and democracy right. but really it was neoliberal capitalism yep you know, i got gotcha. Last fifty but, years. How funny we're talking about this, just as Henry Kissinger is in the um, in the presidential suite on Chiron's boat, heading off to Hades <laughs> gates. <laughs> I hope he's listening. <laughs> one, can, one can only hope. I, I, I yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, back, back to Ukraine. Um, yeah. The, the funding problems for Ukraine is not limited to the U.S. and the Senate not approving. Uh, President Biden's request, the economic hits 
that Europe, especially Germany, has taken from the U.S. imposition imposition of sanctions on Russia. Remember that that's one of our imperial tools, right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Has ironically undermined the European Union's resolve to back Ukraine because Ger- Germany is in for some very rough times and some of the other European countries are as well. Um, the Financial Times reports on uh, December, I believe that was December 6th, quote, disputes within the European Union over money and Ukraine's future are endangering crucial pledges to Kiev made months ago. EU member states are far from reaching a deal over topping up the bloc's joint budget, including 50 billion euros for Ukraine, ahead of a summit in Brussels on December 14th through the 15th. EU efforts to reach a compromise are also being hampered by the victory of a far-right party in last month's Dutch election, which is connected, is very definitely connected to Ukraine, uh, this whole Ukraine Mm -hmm. project. And a recent German court ruling uh, curbing the government's borrowing. A budget agreement would be very, very difficult, a senior official said, end quote. Hmm. Yeah, I know. I'm glad you brought in um the dutch election because there's there you know foreign involvement and um fighting other people's wars as has been a topic in the netherlands for a long time i was in the airport in split when all the dutch troops were being pulled out after srebrenica and there were some really really long faces and the whole um, it was a um, a vivid memory that I have that keeps me up at night, yeah. and no. I think I think Holland continues to be very. And I should say Netherlands. I'm sorry um, mm-hmm. to be very very reluctant to put boots on the ground or to or to have any involvement yep. in something like what Ukraine could be because it isn't all that different right. from Bosnia, and and it, and it takes um, NATO. I think unanimous vote of all the members of nato to move ahead with yeah something, with, that's mm-hmm. a good point i'm not sure but that yeah. that would certainly yeah. make a difference yeah and so yeah it, you know you've got you so they got can't Kurt, go dutch they you, can't, can't <laughs> and everybody <laughs> take their own uh, way I got no, you. Jim. oh boy okay. jim i I'm, I'm just padding my christmas bonus now <laughs> yeah there that's you go right. There that's you go. right santa will fill your stocking up that's for sure um good yeah. Well, well, better not be a stocking because um, all the beer would drain out. <laughs> you try to hold it in in a woven vessel. There you That's go. Right. Speaking of woven vessels, um, do you really think? Do you think both of you? This is a serious threat to Ukraine uh, government, or um, it's just another log in the street they're going to have to lift and throw out of the way. Well, unless Linda, you want to chime in, I was going to say, no, you go ahead. Um, chime it, away, Linda. <laughs> it definitely seems so, right? That, uh, and, and I'll take the perspective from the excellent blog, Naked Capitalism, which I recommend highly to everybody. Um, and they had published on December 4th the following uh-huh. As Ukraine's military condition looks worse and worse with each passing day, Its continued support looks in even more desperate condition. 
It is now becoming an open question, analogous to dealing with a severely ill person with multiple organ systems functioning poorly, which will mm. put them in a terminal decline. Most commentators focus on the kinetic war because it's more visible and dynamic. And historically, countries at war usually are vanquished or surrender, or if you are the U.S., slink off and try to pretend mm -hmm. you really didn't care much about the outcome. Oh, you're not talking about Afghanistan, are you? The witness, uh, well, <laughs> yeah. Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. Yeah, we do it yeah. well. We the do it well. The list is long. Maybe not Grenada, though. I think we took, mm -hmm. we claimed victory in Grenada. <laughs> oh, boy. You got to um, hold on to that one. Yeah. That was Ronnie's war, <laughs> being a big um, man. Yeah. But the Ukraine leadership is already engaged in infighting, and outsiders look yeah. to fanning the fires. In other words, it could be that out of out of pattern for most conflicts, that Ukraine being so much a proxy fighter for the West, and in particular having its government and economy propped up by external funding to such a large degree that the sudden withdrawal of those monies could be destabilizing politically and operationally in ways outsiders can't anticipate. Since this yeah. aspect of the condu uh, conduct of the conflict has been not very visible. Experts you know, have, oh, go ahead. Yeah. May I just say something in, in there, Mark? I think that was one thing that I hadn't thought about when I read some article today was that a lot of the um a lot of the money that's going to Ukraine or the loans that are being made to Ukraine are not in military fields at all, but to support the economy and to prop up the government. Right. Yes. Yes. And, oh, I think, and, and that's what we mostly don't think of. I always just think of right. weapons and, you know, drones and whatever, mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, but that's what this article made clear to me in a way it hadn't been before, that this is also propping up other parts of their government, which may not be able to stand on their own once the right. EU mm -hmm. pulls its support out and um, the Americans do as well. Yeah. And I think it might have been the same article, but inflation, <laughs> inflation in Ukraine right now is about 30%. Yeah. And, yeah. and that any influx of, I mean, here's, here's an ironic thing as well, an influx of a big amount of money that doesn't get sort of uh, siphoned off by corruption, which is very rampant in Ukraine, um, is going to throw more money into an economy that yeah. has no capacity to absorb it all. And yeah. inflation is just going to get go higher. Um, so yeah. they're, they're in a tough spot. Um, experts uh, continue with this article from Naked Capitalism. Experts have pointed out that Russia has succeeded in greatly depleting Western weapon supplies, even as the largely deindustrialized U.S. NATO combine has banged on about the paramount importance of not letting the evil Putin prevail in Ukraine. Yet the rhetoric of urgency has not even been remotely met with commensurate action, namely a World War II or even Sputnik-level rearmament program. So Ukraine has several decay processes operating at the same time. Mm -hmm. Funding crisis, where a sudden loss of spending could cripple all sorts of already halting government functions. It's rapidly mm -hmm. weakening military effectiveness. Uh, as we've covered before, where they're uh, kidnapping, you know, 50-year-old men off the street to fight in the war um, and intensifying fights at senior levels of the government about what to do and potentially who should be in charge. 
It may be that mm. these timelines accelerate so that it will be impossible to pick apart which was the proximate cause of a state change, like a government collapse. But it also mm -mm. seems likely that the cliff effect of a sudden drying up of money spigots isn't being factored adequately in Ukraine's survival prospects, end quote. So that's yeah, a little, I, a little I speculation. Yeah. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and other things to look at is that this is this is a prototype of a different kind of warfare where uh, the technology can be um, very not simple, but um, easy to easy to cob together. You know, you can't make a battleship um, in your backyard. But you can make a drone. You can, you know, you can you can cob together electronics if you're skillful enough, and 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 create very capable, you know, theater weapons. And of additionally, guerrilla wars, wars against indigenous populations where they live and where they function are incredibly difficult for, um, you know technology based opponents yeah you are listening to kfgm 101.5 fm frenchtown full-powered missoula community radio live streaming also on 101.5 kfgm.org i've seen article and article in naval institute proceedings talking about the the unappreciated value of being on the defensive and how difficult it is to defeat you know, and all the wars the U.S. has been in lately, right. you know, within yep. our lifetimes, yep. we're going after people that we presume are underdeveloped, unskilled, um, an easy target, and we get clobbered right. with our naivete. We just throw more weapons at it, more, you know, more, more technology and get beaten by people that we think um, are you know stone age miscreants and it, and they know where they live and they know how much important it is to them it, it's the hubris of empire and indeed um, yeah. and and, and right. i think i think that um we uh i mean you said that really well jim and um mm -hmm. oh thanks we we, we think we, we merry think christmas to you too <laughs> because because we've made people impoverished and we've kept them in poverty that we can mm -hmm. thump them when we want to but we've been um you know getting our rear ends uh kicked mm -hmm. militarily anyway and that's why uh and i i want to move to the next part here because um you know and this is kind of gently going into uh well not gently but <laughs> moving into the the state of freedom of speech in the united states today oh. and um uh and i just want to I'm, I'm not going to read all of this but um Journalist Matt Taibbi, who we've also quoted on the show before, mm -hmm. writing on a Substack mm -hmm. account on December 8th about the lies told by the national security state echoed and expanded upon by the so-called U.S. free press. Um, and he writes, a series of remarkable events with enormous consequences for Ukraine tumbled in rapid su succession this week, lifting the veil on years of untrammeled and proud yet ultimately purposeless and sociopathic lying by the Biden administration and the Pentagon about the war there. First, ahead of a crucial vote on military aid to both Ukraine and Israel Wednesday, Joe Biden went on TV to denounce Republicans for threatening to halt the $110 billion national security package. 
GOP leaders had told the White House that they wouldn't support the bill without border sealing assurances of the type they knew Democrats wouldn't accept. So Biden was cornered and clearly pissed. Eyes snapped wide open as the surely fantastic drugs aides must pump <laughs> by the gallon before public appearances kicked in. Biden went off, quote, Republicans think they can get everything they want without any bipartisan compromise, he snapped. And now they're willing to literally kneecap Ukraine on the battlefield and damage our national security in the process, end quote. He added further apocalyptic comment. If Putin takes Ukraine, he won't stop there. If Putin attacks a NATO ally, then we'll have something that we don't seek and that we don't have today. American troops fighting Russian troops. Extreme Republicans are playing chicken with our national security, holding Ukraine's funding hostage to their extreme partisan border policies. End quote. A few hours mm-hmm. later, oh, so the, the, it's just being uh, kind of losing it here, I think. A few yeah. hours later, National Security spokesperson John Kirby upped the ante, telling ABC reporter Selena Wong that not only should we be contemplating deployment of American troops, but a possible cost in American blood if Putin is allowed to take Ukraine and threaten other NATO countries. Kirby's offhand observation that Ukraine would, quote, lose this war, absent U.S. support, was the actual big news. But Kirby's based Biden comments about blood were the only ones that went viral. After that bang, bang, bang succession Mm -hmm. of events, proclamations of imminent doom for Ukraine issued from the mouths of every Western national security official and war-supporting politician within reach of a microphone. Then Tucker Carlson tweeted a report that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin told House members in a classified briefing that if they didn't approve more money for Ukraine, quote, we'll send your uncles, cousins, and sons to fight Russia, end Mm. quote. That weirdly personal threat, which uh, Tucker insists is a verbatim quote, showed how desperate a moment this is for the national security state. Potential consequences extend far beyond loss and suffering for Ukraine. The entire interventionist project is looking at a setback on the scale of the Iraq disaster, a political fiasco so enormous it prompted four years of cuts to the defense budget. Watching Putin waltz across Ukraine after the last two years of blood, profligate spending, and premature end end zone celebrations by retired brass and beltway beltway think tankers would make the withdrawal from Afghanistan look like one of Biden's tarmac stumbles by comparison. This was the big one, the Mm. all-in move, and what happened in the Senate might be the fatal river card. There are lots of people tied to the defense world who will be looking for jobs in very short order. If the Republicans, Austin was threatening, do the unthinkable and let the sentiment of voters interfere with Pentagon desires. Think of the unconscionable precedent that would be set. It can't be countenanced, which is why things are about to get real on the Hill. Don't be surprised if there are some head-scratching conversations ahead. They will empty the oppo folders to get this one done. Not many people actually believe the U.S. will end up in a shooting war with Russia if Ukraine falls, which is why I'm skeptical these threats will land with the Bannonites causing, uh, after uh, uh, Steve Bannon, um, Mm -hmm. with the Bannonites causing this upheaval, though they might scare the actual members of Congress. However, Austin, Kirby, and Biden did tell one truth this week that the public will believe. 
The only problem is it's something that exposes the White House and Defense Department for having lied almost without interruption. And I would also talk, say, the State Department, I would add in there. Mm-hmm. Um, that they mm-hmm. have lied almost without interruption for nearly two years. Biden saying the U.S. is the only reason Ukraine hasn't been overrun and Kirby imploring that Ukraine will lose the war without us are stark turnarounds from everything we've been told since early 2022. Now, bear with me. He's going to go through some of these things. And if listeners remember, uh, you Mm -hmm. can kind of put two and two together here. Biden himself has repeatedly insisted things like Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Never. And as recently as July was saying Russia had already lost the war. In June, Biden got so excited, he announced Putin was even losing the war in Iraq. <laughs> um, yeah. A little bit of humor there from. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's Matt Taibbi reporting that. That's Matt Taibbi. Yeah. Good job, Matt. <laughs> the PR campaign about how swimmingly the war is going has been multi-pronged. First, keep every alternative site's content out of programs like Google News, but fill it with sunny Atlantic Council updates, such as America's support for Ukraine stays strong. And interviews with soul of credibility types like ex-spy Christopher Steele, who went on Sky News in July to inform us that Russia has almost abandoned the war militarily, end quote. Second, uh, Second, have lots of former generals give interviews saying victory is at hand. Uh, Taibbi's favorite was Ben Hodges telling Newsweek in October that Ukraine was running rings around the Russians. Boy. Um, mm. Third, and, and the press is eating this up, right? And they're not mm-hmm. being critical. Uh, third, write stories about battlefield victories whenever they happen. For example, senior leadership among those killed in strike on Russia's Black Sea fleet, quote, but take the day off when the news isn't good. <laughs> Um, uh, the last this that last tendency is most transparent in the fact that Ukraine write-ups often describe a grueling or churning war of attrition, but somehow right. always leave out the attrition part. You'll get quote Ukraine notches key battlefield victory in war of attrition with Russia end quote in the Hill or the Economist, opining on quote why Ukraine may be choosing a war of attrition end quote. Or the Center for Strategic and International Studies might issue a report about how ammunition shortages might be affecting Russia's, quote, ability to prosecute said war of attrition, end quote. Other typical formulations, the American Foreign Policy Council writing that Russia is settling for a war of attrition, while the International Institute for Strategic Studies describes, quote, Ukraine's strategy of attrition. Attrition is a strategic choice for Ukraine, but a cross for Russia to bear. And I'll say parenthetically, it's exactly the opposite way around. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the truth. Uh, so um, the legacy press has framed most every war story as this or that snapshot moment in a long victory narrative. It's what you'd expect in Stars and Stripes in 1944, but the effect is a little weird for non-Ukrainian media in, in 2023. Um, and so I'm going to skip the rest of this. Um, anyway, so that's, I think Taibi is like right on the mark with that. Yeah. He often is. Uh Yeah. And Uh, this is starting to smack of what I remember from Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, I'm waiting. Oh, you know, when are they going to play the WMD or its equivalent card? 
you know. Right, right. Well, they've but already this done administration, that. um, as um, scurrilous <laughs> and unctuous as the uh, as the guy that was in power, uh, you know, twenty years ago. Right. And say, well, we, we got to come up with a way to lie people to get them to agree with us. Well, the, the WMD moment was when they said that it, that uh, it was an unprovoked invasion of Ukraine by Russia. That's that's the yeah, w- I know. That's, it is never an uh, unprovoked invasion. That, that, that's there, that's there the foundational lie. issues. Right. That, it, insofar as there's a reason why you pick a particular moment. Yep. And you can justify it. Hmm. So, yeah. oh, we're going to talk about state of free speech in America, Mark. Yeah. Well, one one other story. Linda has a story here. Uh, if oh, people remember, a few shows ago, we covered one example of suppression suppression of free speech about the Israeli genocide in Gaza mm-hmm. on the campus of New York City's Columbia University. Linda, uh, this was in the New Yorker in December six. I mean. What, what, what's the summary of that article? Yeah, well, just it's kind of a long article, but it, and a very good one called Columbia Suspended Pro-Palestine Student Groups and the Faculty Revolted. And that business about the faculty good. revolted got my, got my eye right away because faculty mm-hmm. often don't revolt, right? Mm-hmm. Even if there's a good reason, we're just not revolters. But in any case, this does come from the New Yorker, and it's talking about um, the um, general uprising around schools like Columbia, particularly uh, Barnard, a couple of other universities mm-hmm. where there's been and everybody's been reading about them for the past couple of weeks. Um, the presidents have been called on the carpet for basically allowing anti-Semitism to be voiced and uh, to take place on their campuses. And um, they showed up in front of, uh, I think it was a Senate committee uh, recently. Was that it, Mark? Yes. And three three university professors, I mean, sorry, presidents were uh, were interviewed and to all reports, they just shamed themselves uh, terribly by just clearly trying to practice trying to um, please everybody on Mm -hmm. every side and so on. But the thing is that at the university, we claim that freedom of speech and freedom of thought are foundations of education and of life in a free society. And we claim that people have academic freedom. That means as an academic researcher or scholar, you have the freedom to take a position which is not going to endanger your life or your livelihood uh, because you've taken it and so on. Uh, What brought this whole thing to a head in Colombia was that recently the administration suspended two student groups, Mm -hmm. the student Students for Justice in Palestine and the Jewish Voice for Peace told them to disband for the rest of the semester. Uh, No more words about it, although one faculty person points out that there are clear, um, clear processes which are drawn out in advance and which must be fulfilled if you're going to uh, uh, block a student group like that. Um, one student said they said it was for student safety, 
uh, of course, but the way the university did it was totally shady. So uh, mm -hmm. I, it, what, what keeps occurring to me as I read through this, this book is how afraid we all are, how much mm -hmm. fear we, we play on. In any case, um, there's a fellow named um, um, Ahmed, uh, Manan Ahmed, who is a, a faculty member of uh, South Asian languages and cultures, who has focuses on colonialism. And mm -hmm. uh, he's kind of scurrying around, although he says, gee, we, we faculty members, we don't know how to put together a demonstration. We just go in archives and stuff like that. We're real nerd. <laughs> but, but he maintains that what's going on in Palestine is not anti-Semitism. The Palestinians also, by the way, being Semites. So right. That's, that's, that's Absolutely. Um, but I guess the um, International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance defined uh, anti-Semitism as attitudes and words and actions against Jews. So I think that's when it took on its official yeah. anti-Semitism mm -hmm. as against Jews, not against all Semites, right? But he maintains that uh, that this is an anti-colonial resistance here, that it's not anti-Semitic, it's anti-colonial. And this is a resistance movement which is, which is coming along there. But in any case, there are lots of things involved here, and I won't go into mm -hmm. all of them. Uh, yeah. One of them is the um, action of or threatened actions of donors, major donors. If you've not been in a university, Ooh. you will know that major donors make a lot of difference in what goes on there. And there have been major, major donors who have just threatened at these universities to pull out their money if the university didn't get a handle on this anti-Semitism thing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I yes. just want Sorry. I just want I just wanted to add that well uh the uh, well-known group of thespians in the US House of Representatives <laughs> have uh, voted yeah. to consider uh anti-Zionism as anti-Semitic and right. um, which is right. just in line so basically uh really what what they're doing is uh, if if if, if mm -hmm. you remember our lessons about imperialism right and yes right. colonialism right. is imperialism with settlers right so israel right. you know israeli settlers in the west bank right. are colonizers absolutely yeah um, yeah but it's this is all uh the fear that you are are seeing there in in that right. article uh linda is right uh in in large part uh enforcement of the hegemony by the presidents of the universities that because yeah. right because it, it, you know uh, university education anymore uh, is principally about recreating you know uh especially in ivy league schools recreating uh -huh. the ruling class right right and, exactly and, mm -hmm. and that For sure. uh, that 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 you know it's dependent not upon uh, you know it should be a free university that is you know made uh independent of any government you know kind of uh, right. type of censorship but right you know these presidents have taken upon themselves cuz that's not the system we have of universities we have universities serve the hegemonic powers of the oligarchy, 
and right. they have right. to they have to stamp and tamp down these protests, these uh, students who are calling into question the U.S. Right. imperial project in the Middle East. Right. right. And, and of course, many of these donors could be considered part of the hegemony, right? Absolutely. So the donors are really kind of where, first of all, these university presidents run up against the hegemony. Yeah. Um, there's also, I mean, all of this, This somebody was talking recently about the stories that we, namely the hegemony, tells about itself and how the world works, talking about how... Um, I think it's Harvard's um, maintenance people have gone on strike. And this person who was commenting said, really, you'd think that Harvard with its billions of dollars of endowment was going to fall apart immediately <laughs> if it paid its cleaning staff a decent wage. Yeah. Because that's the story that we're told. Right. We're all afraid of that, right? And it's the narrative Right. That goes past us all the time. Harvard will collapse. You won't have your job, uh, right? Right. Uh, right. We Perfect. one 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 source of fear now is you might be called an anti-Semite, right? So yep. you don't want to say the wrong thing. And right. So all of these narratives that are just going right. through our heads all the time from the media are creating this kind of situation right. in which. Let's say at an excellent university, one cannot speak freely for fear of offending the donors or other representatives mm -hmm. of the right. hegemony. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, we've seen uh, this before. Yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. For sure. Uh, remember the BDS movement? Oh, yeah. Um, it's still around. It's, yes. It's yes. still around. And I, I was astounded by yeah. how, how sensitive and uh vitriolic the, the defenders of israel were when um people like student groups and university groups uh -huh. uh, you know wanted to make the world a little bit better by by having a discussion about um right yeah that uh, and it's the same it's the same kind of talk it, and um I'll, I'll just i'll be brief here but i i feel personally invested in the issue about Gaza and the behavior of the Israeli defense forces, uh -huh. and I've sought opportunities to to see. Okay, who who was saying what and why? Uh, there was an excellent um, you know discussion at the uh, Rankin Peace Center on Wednesday, and I oh. got to meet a lot of people with different with differing views. And it, uh -huh. Steve Steve MacArthur did an outstanding job of facilitating it. And I also okay. went to um, Temple, you know, Bar Shalom uh -huh. Thursday night, first day of Hanukkah, and in the lighting of the first menorah candle. And Rabbi said, you know, all members of the community are welcome. It's not just our closed club here. Sure. You know, which I thought was wonderful. So sure. So there are six more of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By, by the time well, you hear this show and, you, and right. you get to talk to the people that are personally affected and find out what do they believe, not the paid spokesmen and the people that have been groomed and handed talking points, but right. you know, the people right. that have a skin in the game. Right. Right. Well, I, um, I, 
so, you know, we're looking at Harvard, we're looking at Columbia in this sense, which has a, I think it's a full year requirement of what we would call a great books course for every Good. freshman, right? So they have this sort of foundation in John Stuart Mill, who said something mm -hmm. like, you know, the best response to offensive speech is more speech, mm -hmm. right? But in instead, the people who are trying to speak more are being silenced, right? And I I'll just take uh, just a minute to talk about this because, of course, as you know, I'm a classicist. That's why I get called back here. And, <laughs> That's um, right. <laughs> and um, one of the fellows quoted, one of the professors quoted in this uh, in this article, talks about how he was in this basic freshman level course um, recently, and they were teaching about the Oresteia, which is a trilogy of plays by Aeschylus, which all talk about revenge and retributive mm -hmm. violence and how there's never an end coming for that. And some of his students started making the connection, right? So what is this Ooh. about retribution and revenge? Yeah. And they did this to us, so on and so forth. Um, but he's, uh, but the, the fellow who writes the article says, the professor began our conversation with a phlegmatic bearing. That's the professorial um, distance, right? Imagine mm -hmm. a classics professor during office hours. But when he was talking about students' speech being chilled, his voice tightened with indignation. He said, isn't this why we ask students to read these ancient texts? Because it's supposed to help them understand the world? And then he went on, if we can't allow our students to notice patterns and raise them in the classroom, then as editors, what are we doing? And that's a huge question in education at all levels today's, right? Is the value of the humanities and what it is that teaches you in the way of critical thinking and making those kinds of connections. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it fits right into the hegemony thing that you were talking mm -hmm. about earlier, Mark, is mm -hmm. it's all of a piece, this education, what do we teach our Absolutely. children and what do we not teach them and what do right. we agree not to teach them, right? Yep. So uh, it's actually quite bubbly back here at these Eastern, uh, at these Eastern universities and the faculty have come out and said this should not be happening to the students because they're using their free speech rights, right? Yep. Uh, some faculty members have been threatened with having their tent or some donors have wanted to threaten various mm -hmm. um, uh, faculty members with revocation of their tenure. Um, but uh -huh. that's exactly what tenure is for, so that you can say exactly. things that may offend people, but you know your your specialty, your field tells you this needs to be said. So in any case, I guess that's uh, I guess that's about it. And I don't want to go on further, but um, yeah. it's a wonderful article. And it, to my mind, as mm -hmm. as an educator and academic, it's a it's a sad, sad place where we find ourselves at our universities yeah. now. All right. We're very pleased today to have with us on Voice of the People, Bailey Desper, and she lives in Billings. Hi, Bailey. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. Well, first of all, tell us something about yourself, Bailey. 
Well, Mark, um, I'm uh, a transgender woman uh, just trying to kind of, you know, uh, raise awareness around some some key issues uh, from LGBTQ to homelessness to, you know, just um, issues that the working class deal with here in Billings. So very cool. And um, and how long have you lived in Billings? I have been in Billings for 30 years. Oh, boy. Yeah. So almost a native. (laughs) Almost. Um, well, great. Well, um, we have you on the show today specifically to talk about issues around the unhoused in Billings. And you're, you sound like you're very active in, uh, in uh, calling attention to the issue and, and other things. Why don't you uh, uh, start off by saying, how, how did you first get involved or what prompted you to get involved? Uh, and you're not doing this for your job either. You told me, um, right. So you're, you're a volunteer organizer is what I would call you. Um, how how did you, how did you get into this? Well, Mark, um, I have, you know, personal experience, uh, being unhoused myself on the streets of Billings. So I know quite well what the, uh, the minority class goes through on a daily basis from interactions with the Billings police department to, you know, different, uh, social services to organizations to, you know, members of the city. Um, a lot of it, you know, it's just, it's about trying to create a humbling experience for the community members to understand that we're all susceptible to this issue that, you know, due to, you know, current rate increases that we've seen current, you know, values and property taxes going up, you know, that um, all it takes is, you know, one unexpected bill, one fender bender, one house fire, et cetera. And we could all be in the same shoes. You know, it's just trying, it's about trying to create a humbling experience and the awareness piece to develop more resources going forward. So um, how long were you were you unhoused in Billings? Um, I was unhoused in Billings for uh, almost three years. Um, what kind of helped me uh, get out of that situation was, um, you know, uh, I found a good, some good members within the community that took me under their wings and uh, basically allowed me to be a roommate. Um, the, the housing market in Billings really sucks. Um, in Billings alone, we have seen a 50% increase in over three consecutive quarters. And it only went down 5% after it raised 75%. And with that said, people just simply can't afford any extra expenses or leisures without the current strain these are creating on our businesses and, you know, the people. Yeah, yeah. So th- three years uh, on the streets of Billings, did you, were you, did you have a job at the time or? I did. I was working as a uh, cashier uh, for a convenience store. It was about the only job that I could get um, being unhoused because of a lot of the uh, the stigma that is around being homeless. You know, a lot of employers find out that you're homeless or that you're living out of your car and they don't want to keep you as an employee, which is, you know, it's very sad. Yeah. Yeah. And that cashier job didn't pay you enough to get yourself uh, housing. It didn't. It, it was barely enough to be able to kind of sustain what my my needs were going forward, you know, whether it was gas in the car so I could stay warm at night or new clothes for work, trying to figure out where I was going to shower or, you know, trying to save up a little bit of a nest egg. But, you know, things happen when you're on the streets and it's unpredictable. Um, you have that sense of uncertainty about where you're going to lay your head at night. Um, am I safe? Um, you know, um, so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We've had other unhoused people on the show before. Um, and we have, uh, they often talk about how difficult it is 
to hold down a job, to get any kind of job, uh, much less a good paying job, which isn't exactly um, plentiful. Um, and uh, uh, when when you're unhoused in, in the whole idea of trying to get a shower and look presentable and, and keep it hidden from your employer, oftentimes that you're unhoused is is a uh, is I, I admire the uh, the incredible um, you, you know in stick toitiveness I guess you know to it, it's just astonishing uh, uh, you know that this is going on but even then people aren't able to um, find housing mm-hmm. so um. So you have personal three years experience uh, on the streets of Billings, living unhoused. Um, what what was the first thing um, when, and I presume that you, you when you got housing, when these folks took you under their wing, um, what was the first thing you did toward um, working on this issue? Uh, the first thing I did was, you know, I, ultimately it comes down to having to take care of yourself first. You know, once I knew that my my mental health and my well-being was taken care of, I then started branching out to, you know, talking to local organizations that deal with the homeless population, you know, creating that that spearheading the conversations going forward. Um, on uh, November 16th, I partnered with Covenant House uh, for a, uh, a national awareness day on the 16th, basically recognizing the month of November as Youth Homeless Prevention Month. Uh, we're in the local, here in Billings, I uh, organized um, with the homeless population and other community partners uh, a night in front of First Congregational Church downtown, uh, where we kind of just spent the night uh, telling stories and listening to other homeless people and kind of some of the issues that they they they've experienced themselves that's very similar you know due to discrimination and the lack of services and you know just the lack of housing and the needs going forward that you know would better suit people um to be sustainable and productive members of society again yeah yeah and i, I imagine um a, a lot of similarities some differences i mean every everybody's different but a lot of sim. What what were some of the similarities that that struck you in in that from from person to person? Uh, well, some of the similarities are making fourteen dollars. You're only making fourteen dollars an hour, and yeah, um, there's just there's a lot of similarities. You know, between the the minimum wage, the the lack of housing, um, the discrimination from local services. You know, um, I'm not going to put any names out there, but um, a lot of people can't get services at our local shelter here in Billings because of the lack of being ADA compliant or um, just, you know, discrimination based off class and minority. Um, you know, if you're not a an average white cisgendered Christian, you more than likely aren't going to get the services, you know, that you're looking for. And if you're LGBTQ, Native American or disabled, you're more than likely going to get shunned away um, from this shelter program, which is, you know, it, it, it puts out a need for additional shelter services going forward. That's maybe low barrier or um, uh, uh, an open shelter for that's inclusive of all classes that's, you know, um, able to help the handicap and so forth going forward. Yeah. And you mentioned um, uh, being a Christian as a, uh, a quality that is necessary to 
be at some of the shelters. I mean, is it are they religiously run shelters in in Billings or? It is yes. It's the only shelter. Yeah. Do they um what what do they do on on the uh, uh, do they you know make you pray what what is it what, 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 oh they what got is... they got prayer services um they require individuals to um you know attend these church services that they have going on that every time every uh, meal period for the people that are within their programs they're required to you know participate in in those those bible studies and so forth and it's just it's not something that's for everyone yeah yep absolutely and so um is there uh, uh you had mentioned earlier before we started the interview that there was a lot of unhoused people in billings that there are 500 school-aged children who are unhoused as well um what what are, what are what are some of the number numbers like that in billings well just talking with like the local uh health for the homeless and the school district two liaisons office they have uh an average of about 500 students and families that are you know uh, living in their cars trying to utilize services at the ywca and um the the need for the shelter is going you know is huge because they don't have like vouchers for um hotel hotel services or you know rental assistance or anything like that going forward um so it's concerning yeah well that's i I mean i'm just 500 kids that's um you know that that's uh, a mighty big that's like one of the middle schools probably in billings is 500 kids that's uh outrageous well um and so the um what what are the, what is the school district i mean what what are the school district in billings uh what's their strategy for that or what what sort of services well, are um in talking with uh local community members the school district too is trying to develop what's called a family resource center um within the fa- with the family resource center they're trying to develop that within the lincoln center um i don't know if you're familiar with like the different buildings around town and mm-hmm. like what school district 2 calls different buildings but within the lincoln center they're going to develop this family resource center that you know provides um meals socks clothing and stuff like that for you know children that are experiencing homelessness and trying to develop additional resources for them going forward to kind of keep them out of cps's care and you know keep them with their families yeah now cps for our listeners is is child protective services yes and um and they uh I, I find it horrendous they do this, but they still take kids away from families, right? If if the families aren't um functioning up to a certain code. They do, yes. And it's it's very sad to see because, you know, um, like I said, you know, it's not like anybody asks to be homeless. It's just that one situation that kind of puts them in that situation that um, without the the additional help going forward to kind of, you know, um, as as a hand up instead of a hand out, um, it's needed. Yeah, yeah. Well, so there's, there's uh, one shelter in Billings, is that correct? That is correct. We're trying to develop a, a secondary shelter. It's called the Low Barrier Shelter, but there's so mm. much backlash, um, you know, in support for that because of the, the issue around active addiction and you know chronic homelessness that people oftentimes they they don't know how to accept the help uh they want the help but they don't know how to accept it Mm -hmm. um and trying to develop you know a need to kind of 
teach them, you know, life skills and um, different different ways that they can, you know, again, be productive members of society. Yeah. Um, is there, there, I take it then there's um, not enough beds at the shelter to house all the unhoused people, even if it were low barrier entrance, right? Right. Yeah, there's, it, there's, there's not enough beds within the actual shelter here. The, the number of homelessness exceeds that number. Um, and then, you know, with the additional issues that it has going on, um, it just, there, there is a huge need for additional services. Um, United Way did uh, secure a, uh, a grant through, let me f find that information for you real quick so I can go ahead and tell your listeners. Uh, they secured. So United Way secured a uh, two point. $5 million grant through Bezos Day One Family Fund. Um, they are having a public event on December de December 14th from 10 to 12 uh, at the United Way here in Billings uh, to kind of open up the discussion on the, or to open up the discussion to the community on local efforts to explore potential investment considerations on this. Um, so they want to help end homelessness in Yellowstone County, but we just need to figure out a solution as a community. Yeah. Is um well and so and you've been doing some activity uh you mentioned about uh sleeping out uh and tr trying to give people some taste of what it's like. Uh, describe describe some of those uh outreach um activities you've been organizing. Well, um I've been reaching out to like Salvation Army um different like um businesses like Walmart, Sam's Club, um, you name it, for like local donations for ceramic heaters, Mylar blankets, socks, uh, beanies, hats, gloves, um, you name it, so that we could just provide it to the homeless um, as like little care packages to kind of show them that, you know, they have support from the community um, and that, you know, we're just trying to figure things out as we go forward. Yeah. Is there been, um, and you mentioned a lot of people living in their cars, um, which is real common across Montana, by the way. Um, is there, um, and in Missoula, I think it's Missoula and Boz Bozeman has a lot of uh, people living out of their cars as well. Is there, has there been um, any sweeps of, uh, of the unhoused, either in their cars or living in tents or whatever um, in, in Billings that you know of? Um, constantly, uh, the city has a, a, a zero tolerance for, uh, like tent cities and, you know, RVs on the side of the, the roads, you know, for like, like you would see, like you see in kind of similar in Bozeman, Missoula, where you see like blocks of like homeless people that are pitching tents and have RVs, uh, that's not allowed here in Billings. They actually chase them away, um, by either, you know, um, re- by either taking away like their 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 shelter services or they they harass them consistently and you know find them for being homeless, which is what, it's where, not where called do, for. Where, what do people do in that in that situation? There's not much they can do besides migrate. Um, they migrate all over town. Um, so a lot of them have been fed up with you know the the lack of services here in town that they've they've branched out from downtown to locations in the Heights and on the West End where they've they've developed these hidden homeless camps where they 
they're hidden from the police and they're hidden from community members. So they don't have to worry about being harassed on a daily basis because of this issue of uh, zero camp out policies. You know, and I, <clears throat> and I noticed here in Missoula, especially that getting to know uh, quite a few people unhoused people that <clears throat> there, there is um, many of them uh, like the community of support that they've built with each other. Have you experienced that too? I have, yes. It's a very tight niche uh, community within the homeless. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and kind of looking out for each other um, because it seems like no one else will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and that probably helped you uh, get through uh, some difficult patches uh, in, in your stint as unhoused too, I imagine. And it does. And, um, you know, because of being uh, unhoused for a certain period of time in my own life, um, I've gotten to know all these individuals on a, uh, a personal basis. And they actually are uh, looking up to me as a as a um, as an inspiration to kind of try to, you know, develop something for them going forward because they know that they don't have the opportunity to do so themselves because of the barriers in place. Yeah. I mentioned to you before before um, we recorded this that. Uh, here in uh, on this show, we've covered a couple of times um, trying to organize the unhoused neighbors union here in Missoula um, so that the unhoused can be a part of their own liberation, be part of the solution, right? Um, mm -hmm. it, uh, is, is there something like that or in in Billings or? Um, so we're working on that. Um, I've been talking with other organizers and people within the community. Um, they have been trying to reach out to the local tenants union in Bozeman and Missoula to kind of figure out what that would look like for Billings. Um, the local HOA here in Billings has 100, over 100 different um, different areas that we would have to separately organize because they couldn't be branched under one umbrella, if that makes sense. Hmm. So we have to organize each each of those individually and that also puts uh, additional issues at, at, in hand because um, once you start organizing um, the like a tenants union with those tenants it puts them at risk and susceptible of becoming homeless themselves yeah 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 it's uh it seems like a big giant uh maw that we're all falling into despite despite trying to to not get into it um well, on on a on a larger issue, um, what I mean, what kind of solutions? Uh, I mean, like long term, real solutions instead of. I mean, I know I know people. There's emergency need right now, but mm -hmm. what are some of the long term solutions you see that could work for Billings? Well, I've been looking at some international models. Um, so I've been in touch with Clubhouse International, um, which through that organization, they provide what's called a federal C grant for like $1.6 million to be able to establish uh, such organization in our communities. Um, with that, the Clubhouse International has been proven effective. It's been around for 30, 40 plus years. Um, it has uh, a few different national accreditations that help sustain it going forward so it doesn't need to rely on like federal and state grants um, and private donations. Uh, this organization would help, you know, with chronic homelessness, uh, psychiatric, active addiction and mental health while in the care of this, you know, this this kind of like long term goal going forward. Yeah. Um, it can house anywhere from 50 to 500. So, yeah. And that's and that's important mm -hmm. to have what they call the wraparound services, right? Because 
Um, not everybody mm -hmm. who's unhoused has a drug problem. Not everyone unhoused has a mental health, uh, serious mental health issue, uh, but plenty do. And if they're not getting services, then th there's uh, no way that they're going to be uh, able to lift themselves up by their bootstraps and find housing. Mm -hmm. Correct. Well, um, so uh, I, I did want to um, uh, explore a little bit. You you were having sleepouts. How how are those been going? Um, so the first sleepout was 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 very successful in the beginning. Um, towards the end of it, um, you know, because it was cold, a lot of community members don't want to you know participate because of the cold. Uh, so it was just you know. Two, two housed community members with a, a group of like 20 to 30 homeless individuals. Um, the city of Billings didn't like what we were doing to try to keep people warm. Um, so they let it go all night long with our fire, but it came to be like five, six o'clock in the morning. They kind of over exaggerated the abuse of power and came and called the fire department to kind of come spray it out. So we're trying to find other ways to keep people warm. Um, and that's where I mentioned, you know, with this next sleep out, we're looking for uh, donations for rechargeable ceramic heaters with those Mylar blankets and sleeping bags and so forth. So we can kind of show the homeless uh, survival tactics and how they can stay warm and, you know, it'd be cost efficient. Yeah. that <laughs> You know, it, 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 just watching police sweeps here in, in Missoula, I, I'm I'm always struck. I mean, it's very hard to watch and it's very hard not to do something but um and i you know and i've documented quite a few and uh uh and and the overkill is uh every time it's kind of an overkill i mean they come in with a big dump truck and they come with a huge front end loader and you know there's all sorts of police and there's park department workers who are apparently becoming less and less enamored of doing this work. Um, and uh, uh, it just seemed, it, it sounds like overkill is kind of the uh, name of the game here uh, in Billings as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, have, have uh, so I, I know a lot of here in Missoula, the city likes to say, well, we're not criminalizing homelessness because we're not arresting anyone and putting them in jail. Um, which seems to me like uh, that that's a really fine yeah. difference between that and just harassing people so they move somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, what, what are your thoughts about that? I think that that's uh, really uncalled for. I think that, you know, if given the circumstances, if they can't get access to the shelters and, you know, um, there's no other options out there for them that, you know, them trying to find, you know, safe, safe places in parks or in local entryways and on sidewalks, you know, that's, that's their right. Um, and they should be able to do so without being harassed from law enforcement and, and um, de dehumanized. Dehumanized is the word. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and really the, the solution is, is housing, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Um and maybe, uh, and also, I think uh, the other part of that equation is uh, income wages high enough to pay for housing. Um, maybe a cap on rent. Maybe a and cap on I, rent, right? I, I know it's you know, um, you know, going back to the whole landlord thing that you know, um, 
landlords, you know, they, they have the right to be able to ask, you know, what they want for, for rent. But, you know, when it comes down to, you know, the issues um, that they're charging, you know, and, you know, it's causing a larger scale of the homeless population, you know, which is leading to more crime and it's also depreciating their home values anyways. So, you know, a cap on rent would would kind of level that that aspect out as inflation continues to rise. Yeah. I think, though, the Montana legislature has preempted uh, rent control as a method of dealing with the unhoused. Um, so, you know, so much for that, maybe. But um, so what are um, what, what do you see is happening uh, you know, or what, what would you like to see happen next in, in billings with around this issue? Well, I would like to see a sustainable um, homeless shelter be able to be developed um, on a larger scale that would be able to kind of um, handle the population at hand. Um, a lot of the services here in town are um, overwhelmed with the population that we currently have. So the need to kind of develop, you know, bigger, larger, sustainable models and, you know, more of them. Um, is needed. Uh, not sure what that direction looks like going forward, but you know, and in, in talking with local community partners, there's options of like different parts parts of the city to buy land um, to kind of create what's called like a homeless tent city. But it has to be like out of sight, out of mind, and that that idea of you know um, they don't want to see it. Yeah. Why Why do you think people, house people, often don't want to see it? Um, you know, I think it comes down to the, the the fact of being out of touch with what it means to love thy neighbor. And, you know, um, going back to the whole Bible or the whole thing, you know, is like love the neighbor is your, you know, love your love one another is unconditional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and also too, I mean, people, you know, this country, you know, supposedly stands for uh, human rights. And it sure seems to me that the right to be housed and safe and uh, 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 adequate shelter is is a fundamental human right, which uh, we're obviously not uh, not at all following through on. Well, um, You're absolutely correct. Yeah. So um, I, I I do I do want to say that you know working with some of the unhoused and the unhoused neighbors union in Missoula, I think they would find you very inspirational as well, um, and and appreciate uh, you coming on here. So we can um, close uh, by um, by I mean any last words that you'd like to. Uh, share with either other unhoused people or the general community? Well, you know, when it comes down to that, um, let me just go here. Um, I just wanted to say that, you know, instead of talking trash about people who are poor, homelessness, or need assistance, I just ask that people be grateful for what they do have and that, you know, you're not in those shoes yet. Um, that, you know, by me creating these sleepouts and trying to organize awareness within the community, all I'm trying to do is trying to create a humbling experience that, you know, to bring that awareness piece that, you know, we're all susceptible to the same issues. We're just, you know, we're just not there yet. Yeah. Well, Bailey Desper, uh, thank you very much for uh, uh, agreeing to be interviewed. And I really do hope that 
you are very successful in, in your organizing work. Well, thank you very much, Mark. And it was a pleasure to be here today. And thank you for having me. We have more news to look at, don't we, Mark? Sure thing, Jim. Uh, listeners will recall that Starbucks Workers United walked out on strike on Starbucks' biggest sales day of the year, their Red Cup Day. Add to this the successful organizing of workers the past two years and Starbucks' assault on the Starbucks Workers Union free speech uh, from its tweet supporting Palestine uh, sparking boycotts of Starbucks. Starbucks, with all of this, is paying a heavy price. Uh, this is a really uh-huh. brief little description from Newsweek magazine on December 5th. Quote, Starbucks cor- Corporation's recent weeks have been fraught with turmoil as a combination of boycotts, staff strikes, and a lukewarm holiday promotion led to a $10.98 billion decline in market value. That's that's real real money. That's right? a yeah. lot. Yeah. Um, while the yeah, iconic... that sounds like a lot even to me, right? I mean, <laughs> oh, you. <laughs> I I know nothing about the stock market, but ten point nine eight billion seems like a lot. It is. Um, yeah. While mm-hmm. the iconic coffee chain's struggles are multifaceted, including a less cheerful Red Cup Day and global political tensions spilling into its cafes, the undercurrent of discontent signals a challenging brew. Boy, that's. Um... <laughs> A challenging uh, group. Uh, uh. The... I feel like somebody's encroaching in my domain. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. That's so right. We, need, we need two bad pun. Ta- ta- take, the, take this up with Newsweek, Jim. I will. <laughs> are you? Um, oh. The... oh, that's not your. Okay. You are forgiven. <laughs> The, the undercurrent of discontent signals a challenging brew for the company's future. An industry analyst has said the stock market has weighed heavily on Starbucks as it grapples with complex societal issues, prompting investors to retreat and driving its shares into the longest losing streak since its 1992 initial public offering. Within the span of 19 calendar days since its November 16th Red Cup Day promotion, shares of Starbucks have plummeted 8.96%, which equates to nearly $11 billion loss amidst analyst reports of slowing sales in a subdued response to the holiday season season's offerings, end quote. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. You, you, they're, uh, they're hurting where Starbucks uh, can feel it, right? Uh, mm-hmm. They're hitting them, mm-hmm. so that's good. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the union and all of that kind of talk doesn't help Starbucks at all, right? I mean, it all just sort of feeds into right. other complex societal issues, but they yep. all work together. They do. As is our theme here, we promote the cause of strong democratic unions. Besides the Missoula Starbucks United Workers, there are efforts to do more union organizing in western Montana among the service industry and other industries as well. That's right, Jim. We support self-organizing workers in Western Montana. There are five worksite self-organizing drives happening here in Missoula this month with support from Western Montana Workers Alliance. There are experienced and trained volunteers to help you get going. You can contact the Western Montana Workers Alliance at westernmtwa at gmail.com. That's uh, W-E-S-T-E-R-N-M-T-W-A at gmail.com or you can leave a message at 406-924-3830 that's 406-924-3830 
Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Linda and Jim. This was a great show. I it was thank aspirational at the it was beginning. Great fun. Yeah, yeah, it was great really fun. good. And and thank you for listening. Uh, please make a contribution to Missoula Community Radio and help keep all of the great programs on the air. Just go to our website at www.1015kfgm.org and you can make it there. Most everyone associated with Missoula Community Radio do so without pay. We are volunteering our time, so please volunteer a few of your dollars. Thank you. Please join us every week on Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. If you know what I mean, I love the country, but I can't stand the scene. And I'm neither left or right. I'm just staying home tonight, getting lost in that hopeless little scream. But I'm stubborn as those garbage bags of time cannot decay. I'm junk, but I'm still holding up this little wild bouquet. Democracy is coming, 